Welcome to SLP Learning Series, a podcast series presented by SpeechTherapyPD.com. The SLP Learning Series explores various topics of speech-language pathology. Each season dives deeper into a topic with a different host and guest who are leaders in the field. Some topics include stuttering, AAC, sports concussion, teletherapy, ethics, and more. Each episode has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com and is available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. Now, come along with us as we look closer into the many topics of speech-language pathology. Hello, welcome to another episode of Making Sense of Mayo. My name is Maddie Metcalf, and I'll be your host this evening for another episode of Making Sense of Mayo. Before we get started, we're actually going to take a quick poll in the comment or the chat section. So if you want to hop on there and answer a quick poll, that would be awesome. So we'll leave that up for about a minute, and then we'll get started with the episode for today. Okay, so this episode is 60 minutes. And will be offered for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. Tonight, we're going to have Dr. Angela McLeod on the podcast to talk about how orofacial malfunctional disorders can impact speech sound production. Dr. McLeod has a, she gets an honorarium for speaking on the podcast this evening, and she does not have any relevant non-financial disclosures. For myself, my financial Disclosures are that I get a, an honorarium for hosting this podcast, and I don't have any non-relevant financial disclosures. There are not any handouts tonight for the podcast. And then I'll go ahead and let you know a little bit about Dr. Angela McLeod. Angela McLeod, PhD, CCC, SLP, is a clinical associate professor and speech language pathologist at the University of South Carolina. Her clinical background includes work with clients across the lifespan in healthcare and educational settings, as well as home health care and early interventions. She has earned certification as a qualified oral facial myologist, QOM. However, additional clinical and research interests include speech sound disorders, literacy, language development, and disorders in cultural and linguistic variation. Dr. McLeod is returning to SpeechTherapyPD.com. She's been featured on the First Bite podcast two times where she discusses myofunctional therapy and has a two-hour course about orofacial myofunctional disorders. Welcome, Dr. McLeod. I'm so happy to have you on the podcast tonight. And hello, Maddie. I thank you for having me, and I'm delighted to be here. Yes. So last week, we learned all about the physiology of swallowing and how OMDs can impact our swallowing functions. And this week... We're really excited to learn about how that can impact speech. So can you start off by outlining key components contributing to speech sound production? Okay, sure. Well, first of all, I'll say that speech production is quite complex. We could literally speak an entire hour solely on what all is involved with making speech sound successfully. But for the sake of time, I'll give a rather brief overview. And I do have some talking points just to ensure that I don't get, I'm super passionate about this topic and I don't want to get so carried away that I forget to to share the important details. So I do have some talking points. So first of all, we know that we initiate speech by sound starting or the source of sound starting at our lungs. And then it travels through our anatomy from our lungs into our larynx. And the larynx, of course, is where 
vocal folds are. When air vibrates across the vocal folds, then we have what's called phonation, and that's actual sound. However, we can produce some sounds without phonation. I'll talk about that in just a few minutes. Ultimately, the air continues upward into our pharynx and then into our oral cavity. Sometimes air can pass through our nasal cavity as well, giving rise to certain we classify as nasal. But assuming that the air bypasses the nasal cavity and then goes into the oral cavity, we have various sounds that can be produced with the structures that we call articulators. So again, excluding the nasals, let's say that we focus only on the tongue and the jaw, the lips, the teeth, the soft palate, the hard palate, the alveolar ridge, we get various types of sounds and we actually classify those sounds according to the place of articulation or the place of air constriction along the vocal tract, the manner of articulation or the manner of air constriction basically a more or less constriction, perhaps one sound relative to another. And then, of course, there's vo voicing, meaning whether the vocal folds are vibrating. So, again, that's a very simplified version of speech sound production. It's important to note, however, that multiple processes must be intact and functioning in order for us to have a fully functional speech sound. So, at the cerebral level, everything must be working. Respiration needs to be intact. Phonation needs to be intact. Proper resonance, meaning our ability to contrast oral and nasal sounds. And of course, as I've mentioned, articulation, what we actually do with the air inside our mouth that can maybe contrast one sound from another. So that's a very simplified version of it. So interesting that there's so much we think of it as, oh, it's just speech. It's just articulation. But actually, there's so many things that have to fall into place for yes. that just articulation to work the way it's meant to. In fact, when we consider that, we wonder how anyone speaks typically at all or speaks right. because so many things could potentially not happen the way they're supposed to. Absolutely. So can you explain what some of the features or symptoms of an or a facial malfunctional disorder or an OMD that can impact articulation? Sure. Anytime I talk about myofunctional disorders or oral facial myofunctional disorders, I do a lot of teaching. And so I'm working with students who are just learning these concepts. I like to encourage them to, first of all, sort of break the word myofunctional down. That's you know, a very basic definition, but myo means muscle and functional means how something works. So essentially, and disorder, of course, is when something is not doing the job that it's intended to do. So putting all, all this together, you could very broadly define a, a myofunctional disorder as a problem with musculature and particularly oral, various aspects of oral musculature such that perhaps our feeding or our resting posture, or in this case, our speech just isn't possible in terms of typical speech or normal speech. So I'll also, in answering this question, refer to the definition of oral facial myofunctional disorder that was given to us by Dr. Marvin Hansen, who is an SLP and has often been contributed or his definition, he's been attributed with giving us the most definition of what an OMD is. And so according to his definition, it refers to 
abnormal resting labial and lingual posture of the orofacial musculature, atypical chewing and swallowing patterns, dental malocclusions, blocked nasal airways, and speech problems. So consider all of those and how they work together to allow us to produce both healthy speech and healthy feeding and swallowing. So if you think about when you ask the first question about what mechanics are involved in in speech reduction, I mentioned the tongue. So let's talk about just the tongue, like none of the other structures. One of the activities that I've asked students to complete in my many years of teaching articulation disorders is to stabilize the jaw so they could open their mouth and hold the jaw steady and with effort use only subtle adjustments of the tongue and see what happens. And that adjusting the tongue only without any other articulators gives rise to very different vowels and diphthongs. So again, the tongue itself is a major articulator such that we can make it make the difference between an ah and an uh and an eh and an o oh without really moving the other articulators. So if the tongue is a major articulator and that is one of the parts of the anatomy that is grossly affected by an OMD, mm-hmm. you can understand how speech sounds could also be affected. I think about if a person has inappropriate resting posture, they're not holding the tongue in their mouth appropriately, even when they're not speaking, over time that could affect the alignment of the teeth. That could give rise to malfunctions. Similarly, if they're exhibiting tongue thrust, that could give rise to occlusions. And think about the number of sounds that we that are dependent on actually having proper spacing of the teeth, proper buildup of air in the anterior part of the oral cavity, such that air is released. For example, the fricatives and the affricates, they aren't released with the appropriate amount of pressure from the mouth. If there are gaps and spaces in between the teeth, that would prohibit inappropriate air escape. And then I think about, again, going back to the tongue, an inappropriate forward resting posture might lead to distortions of certain sounds like the S and the Z that would require our tongue to be in a very precise placement in order for them to be perceived as the standard productions. So again, those are just a a couple of things. And one that One that comes to mind that I've personally had experience with that may not be so readily thought about is um, maybe the R and the vocalic Mm -hmm. R, because for those phonemes, our tongue has to have a certain amount of tension and certain muscle contractions must take place. And if the person's OMD is affecting their ability to achieve those muscle movements, those muscle contractions they could inadvertently have difficulties with um, any sound that requires certain tension. So those are just a few examples. We had somebody ask if you could repeat Marvin Hansen's definition of myofunctional disorders. Okay, I absolutely will. It says that it refers to an abnormal resting labial and lingual posture or labial or lingual posture of the oral facial musculature, atypical chewing and swallowing patterns, dental malocclusions, blocked nasal airways, 
and speech problems. I love that you touched on dentition. Whenever I had just started being an SLP, I didn't realize what a story dentition could tell us about how the tongue was resting. How are they swallowing? And I think that's just such an important part to look at after I've kind of learned more about myofunctional therapy, especially when we're working with those speech sound disorders. Like if we have a really narrow palate, it might be harder to make those ch, ch and j sounds and things like that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's all related. And as mentioned earlier, everything needs to sort of do the job it's intended. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the structure needs to be intact. The function needs to be intact in order for us to to produce sounds that are accurate or perceived as accurate. So whenever you're working with a child or an adult that has an orofacial malfunctional disorder, what speech sounds do you typically expect to see distorted with that individual? Okay. Classically, some of the ones that we might anticipate are the S and Mm -hmm. of course, S blends, the Z, but perhaps some of the alveolar sounds. Like, for example, I've sort of explained how potentially the S and the Z and the S blends could be distorted if, you know, the tongue is not resting properly or Mm -hmm. if there are malocclusions or some combination of the two, those features could affect those phonemes. Sometimes a, a person may have perhaps a tongue tie that might restrict optimal placements for some of the other even even as, for example, that could be impacted by inappropriate ability to achieve the very precise location of the alveolar ridge for the S to be produced for air to flow across a very narrow stream or through a very narrow mm-hmm. stream to be produced as accurate. We also could observe problems, as I said, with the L, the T, the D, the D and the N. I mentioned R. And I've already explained that. So I think the takeaway is that, you know, have knowledge that any or all of those phonemes could be affected. And in your assessment process, aiming to be thorough and look at the various aspects of the anatomy that could be contributing to why a person isn't achieving those ideal placements. I love that you touched on how important it is for the ideal placement So sometimes, you know, it's okay for them to find that compensation and maybe produce a lingual alveolar on the bottom Mm -hmm. with their tongue tip finger down using their mid blade. But we do want to kind of strive for optimal if they have that capability to do that. And so that's something that's been mentioned in previous podcasts. Just whenever we give an articulation test, we have to watch the mouth and see how are they producing that sound, not just hearing the acoustic property of it. I was going to just sort of add to to what you were saying, an example that I can recall from clinical practice. I worked with a young adult who Mm -hmm. he knew something was wrong with his speech for from the time that he was old enough to pay attention to his speech. You know, sometimes younger kids aren't really concerned. But when he became old enough to be concerned, he realized that something was wrong, but he never pursued it or figured out, you know, I need this to see someone, I needed to see someone about this. But by the time he reached adulthood, the career that he chose actually required a lot of public speaking. And so he sought out some therapy to basically improve his confidence on the job. And as as a result of coming to the assessment, it was identified that he, he did have some distortions. And 
further investigation revealed that he actually had a tongue tie and that one thing led to another. He then began to talk about how he would compensate. So when you're talking about compensating and creating alternate placements for various sounds, he talked about how he learned different ways of making certain sounds to sort of get around the difficulties that he knew were there, but didn't know how to explain or didn't know how mm-hmm. to, to correct. So, and this again was an adult. So he'd, he'd done that for a large amount of his life. And then as a result of that, when, you know, we finally realized that he needed to see someone for having the frenulum revision and he continued therapy for like post-surgery exercises and also speech, he had to sort of retrain himself to speak with more standard placements because of the compensatory movements that he had acquired over time. So did he have improvement in intelligibility? Like, did he like that he felt and, you know, like that he noticed doing the therapy and the release and using correct placements versus the way that he was compensating? Okay. I'm not sure if I understand. So after doing the malfunctional therapy and changing his placements, did he was he able to perceive those improvements in his intelligibility himself? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he even, he told us, and I say us because at the time I saw him, I was working with a graduate student in training, but he told us that as a part of his history, his close friends were comfortable enough letting them know, letting him know, I'm sorry, that they sometimes had trouble understanding him. They thought that he could you know, take it in a positive way coming from them as really wanting to help him. He knew that something was wrong. But again, he was com- in that comfortable group of friends. It was okay for him to to relax. But he did report after the procedure and after therapy that he didn't have to have a guard up or sort of monitor his speech. He could just speak naturally because he learned to speak more standardly and without those compensations. That's really awesome. Michelle has a question about this case study. Was he intelligible after the tongue tie was released or did he need therapy after this point to really improve his intelligibility? He still needed therapy. There was some of the therapy that was needed to address the change in the anatomy to prevent tissue reattack. But then the other part of the therapy was for him to, again, continue learning placements. We basically started some of the speech therapy and did as much as we could, realizing that there were things that needed to be medically addressed. And so he went and got the procedure and then continued his therapy and ultimately was discharged. Interestingly, while we're talking about him, he also talked about how he had noticed that there were certain areas of his mouth that he could not clean with his tongue when eating before the surgery, but he could easily you know, remove all the residue after the surgery. So Awesome. And what a true reason of like why we do tongue tie releases to improve function for oral cleaning, for articulation. Fabulous. So we have a couple of questions. We have four questions that are pretty relevant to what we're talking about. So they're all from Kate M. She has some great ones. She asks, so are errors resulting from an OMD considered compensatory or obligatory? To my understanding, obligatory errors are caused by structure directly and compensatory may be non-standard production yet are learned to deal with structural differences. And she actually sort of answered her own question. Generally, if they have no other ability to make the sounds, they just have to do the best that they can with their structures, if that makes sense. 
if they're aware of differences, they may modify what they would naturally do to get something that's more standard. I would consider that compensatory, but it is obligatory if, you know, you can't make your tongue go higher than it naturally will if it's, if it's restricted, if that makes sense. And then Kate had three other questions. Are speech sound disorders secondary to OMDs considered a motor speech delay? I don't know that motor speech is the right term because when I honestly, when I think about motor speech, I think about dysarthria and apraxia. Mm -hmm. In my formal training, we would just say that there are speech sound errors that are influenced by OMDs, but I don't know if I would consider them motor speech. Could a child with an OMD also have a motor delay though? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Would that change your treatment approach if you suspected an OMD along with a motor speech disorder? You know, honestly, it's kind of hard to say because I know <laughs> every, every case is approached individually. It just depends sure. on what's going on with um, with that what like what the the symptoms and the features are that you find in your assessment process. But it, I would say it's not impossible that you would have more than one approach. Um, you know, addressing certain errors based on what this clinical profile reveals and other features or needs according to other clinical data. Um, so our next one, do the atypical patterns resulting from an OMD cause or contribute to muscle weakness causing the speech errors or does it more so affect placement and therefore considered more articulation? Well, anytime you work on um, myofunctional therapy, it's considered motor. By nature of definition of a myofunctional disorder, it is motor. Um, but the, the key is that you've identified something in your assessment process that needs to be addressed and not, not that you're just randomly stabbing or hypothesizing that there's an underlying motor issue. You actually have a distinct assessment protocol where you've measurements and you've you know, made certain observations and you've, you know, sort of gone through, and I think we're going to talk about this some tonight, but there's certain protocols that you follow that would give you the insight regarding the nature of the disorder to know that this is indeed myofunctional and this is the type of intervention that would address those features. And then this last one is not necessarily related to articulation, but I think it's still a great question to address around myofunctional disorders. So with OMDs, there's often chronic open mouth resting posture. In mm -hmm. your experience, once the airway issue is resolved and it's more of a habit change, is this more difficult to change purely because it requires behavioral change or is there a significant contribution of muscle strength, stabilization, and proprioception issues? Well, I, I think about, um, you know, any any clients that we serve who the, the case is that the underlying um, organic etiology of the problem has been addressed, there is still typically a behavioral component that needs to be addressed. And sometimes it's kind of hard to tell what's what, but like, mm -hmm. for example, with cleft palate, they have undergone the surgeries and you've gotten medical clearance that they have the ability to contrast oral and nasal sounds. But just because the anatomy, the anatomical component has been addressed, there is an, an automatic um, acquisition of the ability to reliably and consistently contrast oral from nasal sounds. That's why they're, you know, they're enrolled in therapy to learn behaviorally 
how to alter those tendencies. And so it's it's no different here. Um, you know, it's very possible that you refer for airway competence, identify whatever um, or the the practitioner you refer to identifies what the, the cause of the airway problem was. Um, they address that, but it doesn't mean that automatically the person's going to start um, breathing through their nose versus their mouth. And also you might consider the longevity of the tendency. Mm. If it's a more chronic problem, it may take more time for them to acclimate to the new behaviors than if it's something that's in short term. I know a lot in my treatment, I do a lot of reminders. We talk a lot about it. We Mm -hmm. discuss it a whole lot. We have little visuals that we use, getting the parents, if they're a child, I work a lot with pediatrics. So getting the parent on board, if they're an adult, I'm like, okay, where somewhere, like, let's put sticky notes on your computer, sticky notes on your steering wheel, little reminders. So I try to support them a lot in creating that habit change, but it is a habit. Yes, It's not just open the airway, release the tongue if it's needed. Okay. Here you go. It's a lot of work to create a new habit. I mean, a, a lot of the things that we do in myofunctional therapy are indeed teaching new habits. So mm-hmm. it, it's a gradual process. For sure. Because the swallow pattern, it's there, how they're changing their placement of articulation, <laughs> all yes. of that. Um, Kate said, thank you so much for answering all of her questions. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> okay. Um, so... How can, um, back to speech sound disorders, how can um, a myofunctional approach be used to improve articulation skills when a myofunctional disorders found to be the cause? Okay. Well, again, I think um, it sort of goes back to what you identify in your assessment. Um, Mm -hmm. In a detailed assessment, I actually pulled a little checklist here so that I could remember I told you I don't want to veer too far from the topic. So this is my handy dandy go-to to ensure that I cover some of the important things. So um, in a, a typical myofunctional assessment, we would like one of the things that was mentioned was mouth breathing versus nose breathing. So we're going to look at that. We're going to look about look at the tendency toward open mouth, mouth posture. We're going to assess them swallowing so we could observe for potential tongue thrust. Um, we're going to um, assess their frenula. So we're going to look look for and possibly even measure um, the tongue and the lip frenula. Um, we're going to assess whether they have certain habits. So are they nail biters? Are they thumb suckers or um, suckers of other fingers? Um, do they chew on their clothing? Do they bite straws? Um, are they pacifier users. We're going to, you know, look at all those habits and tendencies. Um, Obviously, we're going to assess their speech sounds. We're going to assess their, um, not directly assess their airway competence, but we could actually screen to determine if a referral to um, an ENT or a sleep specialist are needed, depending on the age of the individual. Um, We're going to look at tongue resting posture. We're going to look at um, the dentition and whether malocclusions are present, um, whether there's tongue scalloping, venous pooling. Um, Can you explain what that is? The venous pooling? Mm-hmm. It's it's when um, 
it sort of looks like they're dark circles under the eyes. They're sometimes mm-hmm. called allergic shiners. And when you see that, that's evidence of, you know, perhaps some a referral needed to an ENT or an allergist to assess. Perhaps that's why they're mouth breathing. Mm-hmm. You know, there could be something that's medical that's underlying that. Are you taking advantage of our new amazing feature, the certificate tracker? The free CE tracker allows you to keep track of all of your CEUs, whether they are earned with us at speechtherapypd.com or through another provider. Simply upload your certificate to your registered account and you're all set. So come join the fastest growing CE provider, speechtherapypd.com. But the point is, we're going to have such detailed data. We even look at like lip strength, whether they have lip competence. But we're going to have such um, detailed data from our assessment that we could then perhaps try to determine if some of what we're seeing that's not typical with those features could be indeed related to the speech sounds. And so... What we'll do then is perhaps develop a tailored treatment plan that's designed to address those features that we've identified as problematic. And Mm -hmm. inadvertently, some of those could influence speech sounds. And I I have a couple of examples here. So um, let me look through my my notes here. I've just got so much here because I didn't want to... um, again, omit important information, but like, say, for example, if we identified that they are not um, properly um, tensing the tongue, let's say we want them to be able to demonstrate that they can make a skinny tongue versus a flat tongue and to sort of alternate between the two when they need to, because we... um, understand that being able to tense the tongue and pull it back is important for a successful R. So um, that might be an exercise that we implement. Or um, another one might be if, you know, they had, let's say they had problems with mouth breathing. They were chronic mouth breathers. And so they tended not to ever really get good bilabial closure. Um, That might influence some of the bilabial phonemes. So you might have mm-hmm. exercises where, you know, they have to squeeze their lips around. Like I think of one that we do with kids. Um, they squeeze their lips around a dum-dum lollipop and you tug. And their job is to squeeze tightly enough to sort of resist you pulling the um, lollipop out. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yes, it does. Or... Um, you know, maybe again, related to the lips, they could potentially because of not having that habitual tendency to keep their lips together, have trouble with biting their lips for an F or V. So you would um, perhaps integrate that as an exercise. But it's important, again, to emphasize that these are not just randomly selected without being scientific and you having seen, you know, objective clinical data to indicate that these are problematic areas. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So like you wouldn't give somebody to do that flat tongue, skinny tongue exercise if they demonstrate the ability to have a pointed tongue and use that on command and they don't have a problem with like R or that sort of thing. But if they're having that difficulty, then you would 
use that exercise to help improve that particular muscle function. And then you're going to tie it back to the speech error that they're having that they need that skill for. Right. Exactly. I, I love it because there is a time and a place for some of these oral motor tasks, but as long as they have a direct relationship back to the functional task that you're wanting to improve. Yeah. And I, I think about too, a large number of the clients, we're talking obviously about speech sounds. Mm-hmm. So the things that we're working on when we're addressing myofunctional disorders are not targeting only speech. Right. We're often targeting resting posture. We're targeting um, what they do when they swallow. We're targeting bolus manipulation. There, you know, there are various aspects of their swallowing mm-hmm. that we're also working on. So the speech aspects are sort of a secondary benefit, but if they right. have legitimate myofunctional disorder, there are going to be some of those vegetative things that are um, priority in your treatment plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just for like a little recap. So we did have um, Linda D'Onofrio and Christy Gatto on, and they kind of gave that overview. And so just like as a reminder, we have respiration is like the primary function of the craniofacial yes. complex. And if we're not breathing right, that's right. got to be priority number one. And then we go into swallowing function. And then like speech is the very top of the pyramid of what the craniofacial complex is responsible for. So we will have to check the boxes before we get to that top point on the pyramid. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you for bringing that into this conversation because that is so important. Such a huge piece (laughs) because, yeah, we can't really talk about myofunctional disorders without talking about the foundation, which is respiration and swallowing functioning. Yes. Um, Excuse me. Bless you. Um, so can you talk about some of the evidence that there is to support using a myofunctional approach for articulation in the presence of an OMD? <laughs> because yeah, not all sure. articulation disorders are going to be the result of an oral myofunctional disorder. Absolutely. And the thing is the the research that's out there, um, has indeed that supports using these things that we're talking about are related to the presence of a myofunctional disorder. Mm -hmm. They're not in absence of a myofunctional disorder. So I will say that this is an area that's not like some of the um, high incidence disorders that are in the SLP scope. I'll even say that some of the, the literature that's out there has actually been published in maybe dental journals mm-hmm. and orthodontic journals than SLP journals. So you're, you're definitely not going to find, you know, these large, a large number of studies. And then these um, studies with huge sample sizes that are, are guiding our practice, but there are a few. And I, I just um, listed just a few to, um, you know, to prepare for this talk. So um there's one study that took place. I'll try to do these um, maybe chronologically, reversed chronologically. Um, there was a study in 1981. Um, the authors are Christensen and Hansen, Sal Hansen, that I've already um, mentioned, who gave us the definition of an OMD. Um, the title of their study was An Investigation of the Efficacy of Oral myofunctional therapy as a precursor to articulation therapy for pre-first grade children. And that was in the Journal of Speech and Hearing Disorders, you know, one of the original, well, the ASHA journal under its older name. 
1981. This has been around for so long. (laughs) Yes, exactly. You know, they've been, you know, OMDs have been a a topic of focus for many, many, many Mm -hmm. years. We're obviously seeing more attention being given to them recently as compared to previous years, but these are not a new concept. I've been in the professors and they've been around the whole time mm-hmm. that I've been practicing. Um, and then there was another study um, in 1992. And the title of that is um, Myofunctional Therapy in Patients with Oral Facial Dysfunctions Affecting Speech. And Maddie, I'm happy to just share these with you up, you know, off the podcast too, if you'd need them for oh, I would love that. I was could you hear me writing them down? <laughs> yeah. But for your resources, I can share these. And then the authors for that were um, but the point is they found um improvements in speech following myofunctional therapy. And the I'll try to pronounce these Biggin, Biggin Fishman, Mayrofer, and Mayrofer Cromel. That's a hyphenated last name. So that's a, a more little more recent study. There was another one in um, 1995, um, Gummerman and Hodge. Their title was The Effects of Oral Myofunctional Therapy on Swallowing and Sibilant Production. So mm. very specific class of sounds, but still they found evidence to support my therapy for improving speech. Then there was another one in um, 2003. And um, it was published, or the author is Ray, and I don't have the specific title here, but the takeaway was that adults who exhibit phoneme errors and reduced intelligibility can improve with oral facial myofunctional therapy. And then there was another one in 2013 um, by Costa, Mezomo, and Soares. Um, The outcome of that was that Oral facial myofunctional therapy may facilitate progress in speech therapy by helping the patients to learn proper phonetic placement for phoneme production. So the benefit there is placement, but that's what we want. We we started early on in our conversation talking about the importance of precise placement. Mm -hmm. So they could be used as placement as well, even if not directly impacting muscle functions. And then um, there's this um, more recently, there was a systematic review that looked at oral facial myofunctional therapy and myofunctional devices used in speech pathology treatment. And though that one didn't specifically focus on speech sounds, they, it focused on, you know, overall improvement, some of the other things that could be affected by OMDs. Um, the conclusion was that. Um, there are a small number of studies to date that explore the uses, I'm sorry, the use of um, devices, myofunctional devices, but there's a growing body of evidence to support the use of oral facial myofunctional therapy within a multidisciplinary team for people with both communication and swallowing difficulties. So there was evidence there, and that was a 2021 study. So one of the takeaways is that, you know, we, we definitely need to um, do more research, but we do have the foundation of earlier studies stemming from years ago to show us that benefits have been um, the outcome of oral facial myofunctional therapy. 
I love it. That's fabulous because there, um, there is the evidence is there, even if it's small, but it's there and it's mm-hmm. been there for a while, um, which I do think is really interesting. Yes. Um, let's see. Uh, Joni asks, could OM myofunctional therapy help patients with Parkinson's who have reduced intelligibility? Um, I'll just say that I am not aware of any any studies that have specifically mentioned Parkinson's, but I recall preparing for a talk talk on this topic for like a different reason. And I did see dysarthria in general mm-hmm. mentioned as potentially being remediated by um, OM um, therapy or facial myofunctional therapy. So, I mean, obviously Parkinson's does have a type of dysarthria, but I don't know if the type of dysarthria that was talked about in that study was um, related to Parkinson's. I'm just not familiar. And you could also go back to to what the, like Parkinson's is degenerative, but then also once again, going back to your assessment, what are their deficits that they're presenting with? And is there a way that we could use to, is there something we could approach from like a myofunctional perspective that would help to improve that muscle functioning? Yeah, I've seen, just from what I know about Parkinson's in general, a lot of the interventions for that have been more or less compensatory. Like mm-hmm. if they're saying loudness of their voice, getting them to project more and speak with intent and right. like that, as opposed to actually addressing muscle functions. But Okay. So we have about 15 minutes left or so. Okay. Um, and I know you had a really interesting case study that you wanted to share. So do you want to go ahead and jump into that? Okay, sure. So um, I'll talk about a delightful little boy um, who was seven years old when he presented on my caseload um, out of parental concern at the time, primarily with his difficulty with R articulation. And I mean, most SLPs know that R is traditionally one of the most um, difficult to remediate phonemes that Mm -hmm. we can encounter. But he had no semblance of R, so no consonant R, no vocalic R, and no R blend. At the time that um, his mother came to see us, he had actually had a previous um, speech sound assessment via another um, connection, and the results of the Golden Fristo showed that he was performing in about the sixth percentile. And um, his sounds and error on that assessment, again, at the age of six, included R, vocalic R, and also L. So um, at the time that basically between the time he was evaluated at six and the time he was seen at seven, he had shown some improvements, but that R was still a persistent problem. Mm -hmm. Um, In assessing the background and collecting case history details, I discovered that there was a history of feeding problems. He had actually, um, as an infant, undergone revisions of his um, lip and tongue, basically having ties released. Um, Throughout his development, he had had frequent colds. There was at least one episode that he had um, what was described as respiratory distress, but he had frequent colds. Um, He had had dental crowding and um, 
At the time that he came in for the assessment, we also noticed that he wasn't really managing his saliva well. He was um, doing some drooling and it was significant enough that he'd sometimes like wipe his own mouth. He was aware, but he just couldn't control it. So when mom brought him to us, um, my initial instinct was, you know, I had my myo eyes on thinking this is a child who has myofunctional difficulties, but the scheduling constraints of the time frame in which we had to work would not permit me. Like I had already invested a lot of time in com- conducting the speech sound assessment and collecting this case history. It wasn't until we were sort of in the middle of the speech sound assessment that I realized, hey, we just need to actually do more myo-focused assessments. Mm-hmm. So I um, veered from the plan and um, used the balance of the time that we had to do some sort of myo probes, like myo screenings, and everything mm-hmm. indeed look as though it was myofunctional. Oh. So um, therapy was recommended, and instead of only working on um, the remediation of the phoneme, we actually implemented a myofunctional therapy protocol. Mm. So um, the treatment protocol included tongue, like tongue tension exercises, that flat to skinny tongue um, that I talked about earlier, um, elevating the tongue tip to the spot, um, you know, actually um, improving the range of motion of his tongue. We did a lot of interventions for the tongue. We did a few interventions for the lips, again, just sort of following a very regimented treatment protocol. Mm -hmm. And in the course of about, I think I'll just estimate because I, I can't, um, I can't recall specifically, but I'll say in the course of about um, five, five to six months, um, the drooling had stopped. He was highly, he became highly stimulable for vocalic R. Um, and he was, he was super sharp. He was such a brilliant child mm-hmm. that he got to the point that all we had to do is tell him if he ever made an error with an R to go to er. And essentially we taught him via a shaping or successive approximation approach to move that er into any other R he wanted. So he could wow. do er red and make er red or mm-hmm. er run and make run or her or um, mother basically. And so he got to the point where he, he was consistently able to make any R that he wanted to. Um, some he actually could just immediately produce the standard R without using a shaping technique, but Mm. I felt like our mission was accomplished and we were successful in that he had no semblance of R in anywhere, any place in his inventory of sounds when he started with us. But by the time he left us, he could do any R he wanted to. That is amazing. Did this kiddo (laughs) need like, did he have any airway concerns going on? Did you have to refer to an ENT or a tongue tie or anything like that? My, well, he had the, the tongue tie and the lip tie. Oh, as um, an infant. Addressed as an infant. 
I suspect that some of the um, the concerns that were reported in the history of before he came to us with the chronic colds and the respiratory mm-hmm. distress might have indeed been an airway or stemmed from airway problems, but apparently they resolved. Oh, gotcha. And so he was, you know, clearly a success story. Absolutely. I love that. I know you said like six months or so. Mm-hmm. That is a fast R remediation. <laughs> yeah, um, it, it's definitely not. Um, and it may have been a, a little bit longer, but it wasn't, you yeah. know, it was an extensive, an extensive period of treatment. He, but again, he was exceptional in his, mm-hmm. you know, his awareness. Once we pointed out to him what needed to be changed, he would catch his own errors. He could self-monitor and start. Mm-hmm. Sometimes even if he didn't know how to revise, he at least knew that they weren't, they weren't standard. And, you know, that's the first step to Absolutely. Able to modify. For have you to, to get that awareness before we can make any changes. <laughs> um, that is awesome. I just love it because it's, you know, a true testament to, you know, we make our speech sounds with our tongue and our tongue is a muscle. And so that muscle needs to be able to shape and move and perform various functions. And we need to make sure that they're able to do that. Right. Um, let's see. Fina has a question. She said, um, I have a question related to frontal or lateral lisp and the related tongue thrust. Would that be considered an OMD? Well, you wouldn't know only from what kind of error there is. Mm -hmm. You really have to look at some sort of at least a screening checklist of um, OMD features. Mm -hmm. Sort of put the pieces together. You can't, in other words, you can't start with the type of error that you're hearing and know that this is coming from an OMD. You really have to engage that client in the assessment protocol and figure out if there is an underlying OMD that's contributing to what we're hearing with the distortions. Do you know of any available screeners for an FLP that hasn't completed a myofunctional course that they could use to identify these kids? There are a couple of, how can I say this? There are, honestly, there's so much information out there on the web now. Very true. That, um, you know, with, you know, some careful inspection, you could find something that's out there. Mm -hmm. I think what's more, um, what's more important though, is knowing if you find a screener, what it means, Mm -hmm. like what you're looking for. For example, when I was talking about the venous pooling or the allergic shiners, you might see a screening form that's out there. Like there's one that's put out by the Academy of Oral Facial Therapy. There's like a, it's called a prescription pad. It's a, it's a wonderful features checklist. Uh, it's, it has like 32, about 32 features that um, a person who has an OMD could potentially exhibit. But if the clinician hasn't been trained in what some of those things are, they may not readily recognize the feature, even if they have a checklist, if that makes sense. Absolutely. So there are some, um, I'll call them like self-study materials. There are some like beyond just a screening checklist. There are some um, tools that are out there that are sort of manuals where um, visuals are provided, um, explanations and definitions are provided. So in addition to a screening checklist, you at least have the the theory and background for what 
and the definitions for what things are. So you have a better idea mm-hmm. of what you're looking at. And then there, there are lots of websites that are are helpful um, for giving you visuals and photographs like Dr. Zaghi's Breathe mm-hmm. Institute. There are all kinds of things on his website that can help what you see in a manual come to life. So the point is, you know, if you, if you think about what Ash's statement is to us as clinicians to ensure that we're ethical and holding paramount the, the client's well-being, we don't have to get um, like our degree in speech language pathology and our C's, our, our entry level um, qualifications. Asha just says that we have to pursue some sort of additional training to ensure mm-hmm. that we you know, are competent in what we're doing. And so that may come in the form of self-study manuals, continuing education classes, doesn't always have to be, you know, an intensive, you know, entire weekend set of courses. Right. I mean, obviously, the more training you can get, the better. But you could start with what's immediately accessible to you and build your mm-hmm. expertise and in, in, in small successive steps. Absolutely. I love that. And so important to you because I know that I get a lot of SLPs in my area that reach out to me and they're like, oh, Maddie, like, I see that you're doing this. Like, what do I need to do? And I'm like, well here's some resources. (laughs) I there it's not just like a one simple answer, but it really is like gathering your knowledge base on building that understanding of what the craniofacial complex is, what is typical function. Understanding typical has been huge for me. Um, And the ASHA website is honestly a very good initial source for you mm -hmm. to go to and read up on OMDs and what they entail and what an assessment looks like. And I mean, start, start there because all of us have access to it. Absolutely. I'm um, posting these in the, in the chat as well. If I have the breath Institute, I have doggies page on like tongue ties. It's super informative. Um, the actual portal on OMDs. So you guys can and the other, the links. other, the other checklist that I mentioned is it's the Academy of Oral Facial Myofunctional Therapy. They call yeah. it. Have you seen it already? I think I grabbed it and put it in the chat as well. It was, okay. I know I was, it's like bilateral tongue cuts. It's very, um, as you're saying, very um, jargony. And if you yeah. don't know what some of these things are, it would be a little tricky to understand, but some of them are really great. Like, are they mouth breathing or nasal breathing? Do they have an open mouth posture? Um, if they have habits, so there's are some that are, would still be helpful. I think for people, even yes. if they don't know all the, all the vocabulary on it. Yeah. And if, you know, as I said, I think it has like 32 features and, you know, even if the client only has three or four, you've got insight to the possibility that there could be something in the myofunctional family going on, something in the myofunctional Mm -hmm. vein going on. Mm-hmm. I love what the case study that you shared just by asking some questions about what early feeding looked like about early respiratory infections and that sort of thing. You're able to kind of piece this myofunctional picture together. If there is like an orofacial myofunctional disorder at play, you can find out so much just by talking to the parents and finding out what the child's history has been like up until that point. Yeah. So one question that we briefly touched on, but I just want to make sure we hit home. Is every speech sound disorder a result of an orofacial myofunctional disorder? Absolutely not. No. And again, I, I'll go back to what I've said multiple times on this um, conversation. We have to look at our assessment. 
Like mm-hmm. what what do our clinical um, features show? What does the clinical data show? So if you're not seeing evidence of these things like airway problems or, you know, tongue thrusting or, um, you know, the adenoid, I'm not adenoids, the tonsils being enlarged, we can't see the adenoids, um, mouth breathing. There hasn't been a history of infant feeding problems, um, tongue tie, lip tie, you know, those things that we know are sort of classic features that are associated with OMDs. If we're not seeing evidence of that in our assessment process, um, we don't really have sufficient data to classify it as a speech sound disorder that could be related to an an OMD, sorry. I always think about, um, I have this one patient on my caseload and um, she came in, she was highly unintelligible. And so kind of looked at her with my myo eyes, but she has a wide, beautiful palate. Her tongue rests up in the palate. She nasal breathes throughout our session. She's not a picky eater, didn't have any problems feeding as um, an infant. She can make all the sounds in isolation, but then she breaks down the word level. She is like a textbook phonological case. And so for her, like this myofunctional approach where we're working on finding the correct placement isn't necessarily appropriate. She really needs like those minimal pairs and that linguistic approach to build her um, phonological system. Um, Mm -hmm. and so I think that's one of the biggest takeaways is that while yes, we do need to be looking at myofunction, whenever Mm -hmm. we have a speech sound disorder, we just also have to remember, this is just one piece of that differential diagnosis puzzle. Um, and there's still a whole host of other things that could be going on with a patient besides just an OMD. Um, and sometimes, you know, relating or extending what you said, Maybe it's not a linguistic, you know, phonological remediation they need. Maybe mm-hmm. they just need placement. Maybe right. they need you to show them you need to elevate your tongue to the alveolar ridge to make your L. You're you're rounding your lips. You're not elevating mm-hmm. your tongue. Let's look in a mirror and practice elevating your tongue. And in that case, you're not doing it because you think that their frenulum is restricted. You just see that their tongue is not approximating the alveolar ridge. So they're not getting the standard phony. Yeah. And they need a lot of drill. They not need a lot of, mm-hmm. you know, think about principles of motor learning. They just need to learn to habituate. We've been talking about habits. Yes. Habituate those new placements. Absolutely. Well, let's see. We'll give people just a couple more minutes to see if anybody has any other questions this evening. Um, but this has been so fabulous. I learned so much from you this evening, Dr. McLeod. Um, I loved the two case studies that you shared this evening. Um, just really kind of drove home like how beneficial looking at speech sound disorders from a myofunctional perspective can be whenever we are dealing with a true myofunctional disorder. Um, so this has been fabulous. Well, I'm really um, happy that you thought enough of me to have me here. And, um, you know, this is something I've had a long-term interest in. Like I said, I've I've been in speech pathology for a long time, and I've honestly sort of always been interested, even before, you Mm -hmm. know, science has um, taken us into other directions with myofunctional, like with the airway and the appliances and all the things that are out there now. Back in the early days, I was interested in tongue thrust when, essentially, when you heard tongue thrust, that's that's what this was. We weren't concerned about some of these other, Mm -hmm. but I've been interested in it ever since then. So 
Well, I appreciate everything you're doing. And for anybody that, um, oh, have you had any middle school students with hyponasality and large adenoids that had adenoids removed and residents improved? I, honestly, I think I've seen um, some cases where it resulted in some hypernasality. I've had that happen um, with one patient. <laughs> the surgical intervention. I don't know if I've seen seen the opposite, but I would just say if you have any um, suspicion or concern that there could be an airway issue, mm-hmm. go ahead and refer. And you've done your role. You've served your role in making the referral. And it's up to the medical professionals Absolutely. to decide whatever kinds of interventions are needed. Um, yes. That's always what I say. Refer out and we can, I've done my due diligence. If I have referred them out to the provider that can check that out for them. <laughs> yes. Yes. So if you guys love Dr. McLeod as much as I do, just a reminder that she has been featured on the first fight podcast with um, Michelle Dawson talking about myofunctional disorders and um, they're both fabulous. I learned a lot. And then she also has a two hour course on oral facial biofunctional disorders. If you want to learn some more. Um, Thank you again for your time this evening, Dr. McLeod. It was fabulous. I'm so happy that you're a part of this mini series. I know it'll be very beneficial to the series as a whole. Um, Thank you so much. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you, Maddie. Of course. Thanks for joining us at SLP Learning Series. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs. We appreciate your positive reviews and support and would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe. If you like this and want to hear more, we are offering an audio course subscription special coupon code to listeners of this podcast. Type the word SLP Learn for $20 off. With hundreds of audio courses on demand, and new courses released weekly, it's only $59 per year with the code. Visit speechtherapypd.com and start earning ASHA CEUs today.